New Year's Eve, a birthday, the first day of spring, or just a regular Monday. What do all of these have in common? They're a time when it might be easier to make a fresh start, to change or introduce new habits or routines, or to set an ambitious goal for your work or your personal life. Timing matters. But what else do you need to take the first step in making a positive change? And more importantly, how do you stick with it? This is what we're talking about in our latest episode of Resilience at Google. I'm Lauren Witt, the head of global resilience at Google. In this podcast series, we're pairing neuroscientists and psychologists with mental performance coaches to uncover the science behind resilience and to help us put into practice tips and strategies to respond to change and daily challenges. Today, we have a conversation with Katie Milkman, who is a behavioral psychologist at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the host of the podcast Choiceology from Charles Schwab, and she's the author of the book, How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. We don't think about time linearly. We create these chapters in our life stories. And when we feel that we're closing one chapter and opening another, we have this optimism about what we can achieve. And so there's this boost. We've seen it in terms of when people set goals and we can also activate this effect. We can actually change behavior. And with her, we have Justin Sua, a mental performance coach, author, and host of his own daily podcast, Increase Your Impact. He works with professional Major League Baseball teams, as well as elite performers and professional athletes across other disciplines. One thing you can do is to ask yourself, at the end of the day, how did I learn from failure today? What you're implying is, I failed today, I wasn't perfect today, but what did I learn from it? How can I take the lesson there and apply it to tomorrow and apply it to another obstacle I'm going to face? They're here to tell us about the best times and the best ways to change our environment and our habits to be our best and to do our best work. This is our next episode, Fresh Starts. Justin, Katie, welcome to the conversation. I'm really excited to be able to have this conversation with the both of you about performance and new starts and fresh starts and behavior change, which is something we're all striving for, but it gets really hard in the day to day. And so, Katie, let's start with you. You're a behavioral scientist. What does that mean? <laughs> Great question. It means that I am a scholar. I'm at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania doing research, and my area of expertise lies at the intersection between psychology and economics. I study the way people make decisions and specifically how to improve people's decisions so they can have better outcomes in life. 
Nice. Does that apply day to day? Do you find yourself caught in how you change and make decisions versus what you know to be true about changing and making decisions? Oh, I laugh a lot with my friends and family about the fact that I do me search in addition to research because I have all the problems that I study. I study decision biases, all the mistakes we make and how to try to fix them. And I make all of those mistakes, which is part of why I was drawn to this field. So, yes. <laughs> Justin, you're a mental performance coach. You work with elite athletes and performers. What does that mean? Like, what do you do to help enhance performance? Mental performance is the activation of mental skills to achieve a task, how to make decisions, how to reframe our situation, how to apply probabilistic reasoning to athletic performance. So these elite athletes could make better decisions so they can be more resilient, so they can enhance their confidence. My job is to be there with them along the side and serve as an outside view to whatever they're navigating through. What I like to do is to really identify what do they already have at their disposal and help them use it on purpose with purpose. I love that on purpose and with purpose. And so with that, I want to jump into some questions that Googlers have been asking us around performance and routines and habits and fresh starts. We've spent the past year and a half, two years, really structuring a program at Google called Meet the Moment around answering Googler questions. And so I'm here today to ask some of the questions that we've been asked to you and where we can take the science and the research and turn it into application for both people at Google and those outside who might be listening. And where we're going to start is when is the best time to build new habits personally? That big question of when, like when do I start new things? And Katie, let's jump over to you with the research and the science on when is the best time? Well, you're giving me a flashback to about a decade ago when I was on your campus in Mountain View and actually got the same question from Prasad Seti, who was at the time one of the leaders in your people analytics group. And I had just presented a bunch of my research on behavior change, how we could use tools from behavioral science to increase the rate at which people signed up for retirement savings benefits or went to the gym. And Prasad said, but when, when should we offer these tools? Is there some ideal moment? And actually, I didn't have an answer then, but happily, I have one now because his question sparked a research agenda that I pursued vigorously with collaborators to try to understand what are the best times to create change? When are we most open to taking that leap to pursue a new habit or self-improvement? The part that's unsurprising is what immediately popped into mind, and that was, oh, well, what about New Year's, right? We know that about 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions, and it's a globally popular phenomenon as well. And that is because they have this sense that the new year is a fresh start and a clean slate, and they've closed the chapter on the previous year. Whatever failings they had, whatever limitations, that was the old me, and this is the new me. And so there's this boost. And what we found in our work is that it's not just New Year's. That's actually just one moment in a set that we treat as fresh starts. So it turns out moments like the start of a new week, the start of a new month, the celebration of a birthday, the start of a season, starting a semester if you're a student, moving to a new community, 
all of these moments feel like they bookend a chapter in our lives because we don't think about time linearly. We create these chapters in our life stories. And when we feel that we're closing one chapter and opening another, we have this optimism about what we can achieve. So those chapter breaks give us that optimism. And we've seen this in data set after data set, including actually looking at Google searches for when people search for the term diet. We've also seen it in terms of looking at when people start visiting the gym. Uh, We've seen it in terms of when people set goals. And we can also activate this effect. So if we remind someone of a fresh start that they might not have been paying attention to, like the start of spring or an upcoming birthday, and encourage them or invite them to make a change or set a goal, by highlighting those dates, we can actually change behavior. So it happens both naturally and with purpose, to use Justin's terminology. I really like that. And I have seen with the professional sports setting and the elite performer setting, I've seen that applied in in different arenas. One thing that I think that professional athletes have, a benefit they have is just the way that the sport is set up. It is an accumulation of fresh starts. Every new inning in baseball, every new batter in baseball, every new pitch in baseball. And From what I've observed from the best performers in the world is they have the ability to focus on this pitch, on this possession, and to see this new moment as a new opportunity to learn from what came in the past, but then to calibrate what they learn and to take it into this moment right here and right now. And the ones that, to your point, that I see struggle are the ones who it just accumulates. A bad pitch turns into a bad at bat turns into a bad inning, turns into a bad season, turns into a bad career. And I love what you said, highlighting where people can start fresh. I actually have a question myself. Are there worse times to start a habit? Times that are not ideal? Yeah, it's a really great question. So our research hasn't explicitly looked at that, but the natural outgrowth of what we've studied and and other work I've seen would suggest that really bad times would be when you're really in the middle of, of things, right? Like you're harried, you're stressed, you're, you've got deadlines looming, and there's nothing fresh about life at all at that moment. It may not be the best time, right? The more crushed you are by what's going on, the tougher it can be to step back and think big picture and be able to reshuffle Um, And there's also some great work that's been done by Steven Spiller at UCLA showing that if we try to plan multiple goal pursuits at the same time, we actually end up worse off than if we just focused on one thing. And I think that also points to when are bad moments, moments when we've already got something that has to have our full attention that we need to be mapping out a plan for trying to layer on another change can be really tough. When things are going really well, actually, a fresh start can be very damaging and disruptive. And I think that's such an important point for all of us to think about um, how are we going to manage the disruptions that come along throughout our lives? Uh, We want to use them for good to help us start new things, but we also want to manage around the way they can throw us off track. If we have a good habit we've built, if we're on a roll in some way, how are we going to make sure we can sort of get back on the wagon after that disruption? I think what's interesting about that, Katie, is that many of us work in a corporate setting and sometimes we kind of wish we could get traded, like a project is not going well or an assigned task is just not something that we really want to do. Or maybe there's just that 
burden, right? I think a lot of us have felt that over some point in our career, especially given the turmoil of the last couple of years for various reasons. And we kind of want that fresh start. Like we need that fresh start. And sometimes the Monday or a new month, like that's not a strong enough signal to be a fresh start. So when we do feel that pressure and that stress, that emotion of feeling overwhelmed, how can we create or leverage fresh starts in a new way that would be potentially more powerful than the turn of a calendar? A couple of things come to mind, and and it differs depending on your role in an organization. To the extent that you are a manager and you have the ability to help others around you um, create fresh starts, I think one tool to leverage is thinking about performance resets and the way you're tracking people's performance. You actually could think about trying to reset the metrics for people who are struggling and say like, normally we evaluate how you're doing at this frequency, but I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. It's going to start today, right? So you actually can, to some degree, control tracking and, and give people a sense of a fresh start in that context if you're a manager. If you're thinking about how do you create a fresh start for yourself, I actually do think it's important when you get that kind of a signal to, to reflect on like, what can you change? Because this probably is a moment when you need to make some sort of change to the way you're pursuing your goals, to the way that work is flowing. Is it possible to actually disrupt things by moving to a new environment for your work? Is that something you could talk with a manager about? Is there a different place where you could be that might give you a sense of renewal? Is there some way you could shake up the team that you're involved in or have some opportunity to work with a a few different people or start a new project. So if you're feeling like, gosh, I really am in a rut, I think the right next step is to start thinking about what are the disruptions you can create in your own life that are bigger than a calendar change and to talk about things that could be adjusted in order to give you that sense of renewal that you're looking for. I've seen that. I was once working with uh, someone who was not an athlete. And the perception to her was it was loss after loss after loss. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. What she decided to do is because she couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, she decided to create a light at the end of the tunnel, a temporary one. Now, there's a concept called the goal gradient effect. The goal gradient theory states that the closer you get to the goal, your effort accelerates. And she wanted to apply that principle to her life. She said, okay. I have no motivation because I can't see the finish line. Well, let me create a temporary finish line and let me run to it. For her, it was two weeks away. And wouldn't you know it, her motivation increased, her effort, her desire, her mood, her anticipation for the better version of herself in two weeks started to bubble up and she did it. And then she enjoyed it so much, she created another one and another one until she ended up climbing her way out of the difficult situation she was in. She taught me a lot from that experience. I love that story. And uh, I should say, Oleg Urbinski is a scholar at the University of Chicago who did some really interesting research showing that humans have this tendency to work harder when they get closer to a goal. And there's this one famous study where if you get one of those coffee punch cards, right, where it's like, you know, 10 punches and you get your freebie. And if you compare a group of people that gets that 10 punch card with another group that's given a 12 punch card with the first two punched, they both have 10 to go. 
but one has some progress and you can see they're further along in the goal gradient. And the group that gets the the 12er with the two punches gets to the end faster. So I think that's really fascinating. This work is fascinating. When I look back at my former career as an athlete, how many of those skills and just ingrained practices rolled over into how I lead and manage our teams and programs at Google in that, yes, that last part, you're putting more effort into getting to the finish line and there's a set timeline and letting the teams know we are going to push and sprint to this point, then we will rest. And rest is such a big part of performance and resilience. And then we will go again and then we will rest and giving people that pause whether it's a hard stop or just a momentary pause of a project or, or a work cycle has been incredibly valuable. The next question from Googlers, and this comes both from individuals and managers with a slightly different lens. The question is, how do you build habits and routines when the only constant is change? What's coming right ahead from an environment or a health perspective or a reorg or a leadership change or a project priority shift? How do you build habits and establish routines when you know everything around you is about to change or could change? Oh my goodness, that is such a good question. And actually, happily, I can answer it by talking about data I collected with Googlers. I think it was 2014 when I got really interested in the question of how to create durable habits. And one of the places where habit formation has been studied most is actually with gym attendance. And I was super interested in understanding whether we could create durable gym habits for people with busy lives using science. And everyone I talked to at the Pi Lab at Google was super excited about this idea. And they gave us an opportunity to run this randomized controlled trial, big experiment with Googlers, encouraging them to build lasting exercise habits, but trying to encourage them in different ways to see what worked best. For those listening who might not be inside the Google language, PyLab is our people innovation lab. They are part of our people operations organization where we really focus on people-related research. So we talk about well-being, work satisfaction, productivity, inclusion, and they do a lot of uh, very scientific data-driven research within Google, which oftentimes gets shared back out into the world. Back to you, Katie. So we recruited over 2,500 Googlers from all across your offices to sign up for a program. It was actually called the Fresh Start Challenge that was designed to help them build a lasting workout habit. So it was a month long program and they learned that during that month, they would actually earn cash rewards every time they visited the Google gym. But we had two different experimental conditions. So one group of Googlers was given a standard cash reward. You get paid three to $7 for every gym visit, no matter when you go. The other group only earned that reward if they visited the gym during a window that they had told us at the start of the program was ideal for them. The idea behind this design is we wanted to see if it mattered whether you exercise always at the same time, really building consistency to establish a habit and try to create a lasting change in your life and your routines or not. 
And actually, all of the theory about habits leading up to our study suggested that it's ideal to be incredibly consistent in the way you build a habit. So we're all excited. We run this massive experiment. We crunch the numbers. And our hypothesis was totally wrong. <laughs> the people who built habits that lasted after the program ended were actually the people who went to the gym due to our incentives uh, much more flexibly. Sometimes they went at 9 a.m., sometimes they went at noon, sometimes they went at 5 p.m. So this is like a puzzle for us initially. And we dug into the data, what's going on? And what we found is that we weren't totally crazy. The people who had been rewarded for that consistency, they actually were more likely after the program ended to show up at their usual time at the gym slightly than the other group. But if they missed their regular time, that was it. They didn't come at all, right? So if they're, they're a 7 a.m. person, it's 7 a.m. or bust. That becomes their rigid routine. Whereas the group of people who had formed a more flexible habit, they're coming to the gym whether their ideal time slot works out for them or they have a meeting and they have to move it no matter what. They show up no matter what, and that leads to more resilient habits. So to me, this was a revelation, and it was a big surprise to actually the sort of habit research community, because that was not what people had predicted. But I think it's such an important lesson, as you said, in this time of change for thinking about how do we build habits, we need to build flexibility into our practice. So my key takeaway is when we are trying to build routines, when we're trying to build habits of any kind, don't be rigid about the when and where, because if you are, then you'll build a rigid habit that doesn't flex when life throws change your way. I so appreciate that. We talk a lot about resilience being dynamic and not stagnant and how in order for us to be resilient individuals, we have to be able to adapt and adjust our routines and habits based on the situation. And Justin, you're in the application world every day. Many of us are going into a world or are in a world where we're working from home some days, we're working from an office some days. And so I'm curious from your perspective and practice, how do we have adaptable routines? When Katie was talking, I was just thinking about the many people, many athletes, the men and the women who create adaptable routines and cultivate adaptable habits in the midst of a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment. Wherever there's uncertainty, Negativity will fill the void. What's going to happen? How am I going to do this? But the ones who I have observed succeed are the ones who embrace the uncertainty. They use uncertainty as a compass to build micro habits and micro routines along the way. And what I pulled from Katie's research, you have to build a routine or a habit around something that matters to you. In the case of that Google study, working out, we call them physio fundamentals, sleep, eating properly and exercise. If you want to strengthen your brain, get the physio fundamentals right. One thing that I have also seen is this notion of compassion. Because what happens a lot of times to people is when they don't do that thing that they said they would, they view it as breaking a promise to themselves. And it's a hit to their confidence. It's a hit to their almost self-identity. But that's where compassion comes in and self-compassion and realizing, okay, this is my situation. Let me have a new start. That notion that little by little, a little becomes a lot. Attach that habit to something that's meaningful. Make it flexible. Make it something simple and have some self-compassion if you're not able to fit it in. And doing something small 
is better than doing nothing at all. I just want to piggyback on that. My colleague, Marissa Sharif at the Wharton School has done some really great research that aligns with this idea you're saying of the importance of self-compassion. There's sort of two extremes she looked at. One is trying to do the thing every day, seven days a week, whether it's running or productivity hack, whatever it is that you're trying to do. That's a tough goal, which always motivates you more. The other was, what if you try to do it just five days a week? So you give yourself some wiggle room. And she thought, actually, there's something better I can test and threw into the mix, which is try to do it seven days a week, but give yourself two emergency reserves. So you'll still say you're on track for the seven, but you get to pull out that emergency card when something comes up. And what she found is that striving for that tough goal, but giving yourself two of those get out of jail free cards that you only use in emergencies was the best because it has you pushing for that hard goal, going for it all, not sort of giving up when you already hit your easier benchmark, but also recovering when something does go wrong, which happens and having a way to not give up on yourself. So I think we should all use emergency reserves in our lives to have compassion when we're striving towards something. We should set those ambitious goals, but also give ourselves that cushion that we might need if something comes up. We talk a lot at Google about control the controllables. The world is changing around you, but what can you control? You can control your thoughts, your energy, and your attention. And so I'm curious if there's a perspective or personal strategy that either of you use when you're trying to maintain a habit and the world's dynamically changing around you. The pithy statement from Stephen Covey, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's always one of my go-tos. And what you learn in, in human performance, there are relevant cues and irrelevant cues things that matter and things that don't matter. So the performer who's getting ready to perform, a lot of times you're experiencing flow or you're in the zone or you're at your best when you keep the main thing, the main thing. Okay, where should I put my attention? What should I be focusing on? Now the irrelevant cues are things you can't control. These are the things that don't matter. It's the past, it's the future, it's what people think about you. But if you're not careful, those irrelevant cues could cloud your mind and you just don't show up the best version of yourself. So for me, I'm always reminding myself, keep the main thing, the main thing. What comes to mind for me is actually it's related and it's a metaphor that I've always loved that life is a juggle. And when things get tough, when unexpected things get thrown into the mix, the key is to remember which of the balls you're juggling are made of glass and which are made of plastic which ones you can drop essentially without serious consequences. It's about prioritization and recognizing that you cannot always do it all, but you just can't drop the balls that are made of glass. So keeping an eye on which those are. Let's take on a new question from Googlers. They're asking, what role do our communities and relationships play in reinforcing change? We have communities that are positive and negative. We have relationships that are helpful and useful and some that maybe not quite as helpful and useful that are around us. So how do our communities and relationships reinforce our ability to make changes, especially our fresh starts, Katie? I'm not sure there's anything more important, honestly. It's so critical. And I have to say that actually the research I am most excited about that I'm working on right now is incredibly focused on using the power of the community and groups to try to help create even more potent, long-lasting change for the better in people's lives. 
And, and there's two prescriptions I would suggest. One is just surround yourself with the kinds of people who are achieving the goals you want to achieve, because just naturally that's going to carry you forward. But the second is something that I've studied called copy and paste. Go find someone you know who's achieving it and ask them how they're doing it. And then ask them for some hacks. Pick one, just one that you think is useful and try to adopt it yourself. Those are really, really good tips. I think about a quote by James Clear, who wrote the book Atomic Habits. And one of my favorite sentences he has in there is, our environment is the invisible hand that shapes behavior. If you take a look at the, the research on environmental design, that's why organizations care so much about how just the colors of the office, what's the, the, the layout of the office, all of that kind of stuff nudges behavior. What can you do to build an environment that will help you make good behaviors or what you perceive to be good, easy to do, and bad behaviors hard to do? Justin, I just want to make a plug for a, a wonderful book that I think beautifully illustrates the importance of the environment and, and the points you were just making, which is Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And it's a book that actually changed the course of my career in life and life and put me on the path to studying what I study. And it's all about how the environments, whether it's a cafeteria or uh, a form or an email or any kind of environment, digital or physical, shape us in predictable but underappreciated ways. So highly recommend for anyone who's thinking about that idea. Nudges in our environments are so important and they're so intentional. And for those who are tuning in and want to copy and paste from the experts here, Katie talks a lot about this in the conformity chapter of her book, How to Change. And then Justin, I want to close this segment with just one example that you and I have talked about with fountains and drains, because the environment is very critical to how we make decisions and our ability to continually follow a routine or a habit. But it's also about the people. Yes. What I love about the fountains and the drains metaphor is, is simply fountains are people who lean into the best versions of themselves, their values. So when I say, who are the fountains in your life? These are the people who you go to, who you surround yourself for not necessarily a particular reason, but you love a particular thing about them. You have people in your life who are fountains of optimism. They're just optimistic people. There are other people who are just fountains of humor. We also have fountains of people who are prudent and organized. We have people who are fountains of peace. When you're around them, you just feel at peace. There are also people who are fountains of perspective. Someone who could shine a light and give you critical feedback in a way that you won't allow anybody else to give you that critical feedback, you're going to go to that fountain. Those are the people you want to surround yourself with. Sometimes you might think, well, I'm, what if I'm not around fountains? Hey, you can find them in the form of authors and researchers and musicians. Now. The opposite of that, the other end of the stick, we have drains. Now, what drains are, this is a person or people who have a problem for every solution. Now, when I first bring up the, the drains and the fountains metaphor, people start laughing. They're like, oh, I know drains. And I say, wait a minute, we're drains as well. It's not like somebody is a drain or a fountain. We have fountain drain moments. I could bring my kids in and my wife in and they can give you plenty of my drain moments. But I think it's important to understand 
really highlighting these fountains. If you find yourself struggling, and Katie talked about this, maybe there's a fountain of a certain habit you want to build. Sometimes we can experience those kind of habits and search those people out, those fountains, and have them walk you through their process. I love the analogy. For those who are managers and leaders, my last comment on this is in our teams and in our communities and our relationships, we have this high bar of challenge. We have to meet it with a high bar of support. It can't just be challenge. It has to be support and encouragement to match that level of challenge. And for managers and leaders, it's so important to think through that. So one more question that we have at Googlers come and ask us all the time because we want the quick fix and we want practical direction. Googlers often ask, what can I do now to increase my resilience? I'll give you a piece of advice that I definitely use in my own life and that I never would have given if I hadn't studied it. And that is, it can be really helpful to coach other people in areas where you hope to build resilience. There's research by Lauren Eskris Winkler of the Kellogg School of Management that I've gotten to participate in uh, as a collaborator showing that when we give advice to other people, it actually improves our own performance for a few reasons. One, it increases our sense of self-worth to have this opportunity to give someone else advice when someone listens to us or looks to us for knowledge and wisdom because we're in a mentor role, we get this confidence boost. Second, it causes us to feel responsible for coming up with insights that we might not have thought of otherwise, because if we aren't on the hook to help someone else, maybe we won't introspect as deeply. And finally, once we've given someone else that advice, then we're going to feel hypocritical if we don't take it ourselves. So I actually have an advice club of women with similar career goals and similar challenges and we reach out to each other um, when we face a career challenge. And it has been completely life-changing and completely changed my resilience to have this group, both because I get incredible wisdom, but surprisingly, actually, the act of giving advice has boosted my confidence and competence and resilience as well, because it helps me see around a corner when I face a similar challenge, I, I know what to do and I have the belief in my ability to tackle it when it comes. So that would be my number one piece of advice. Uh, think about an advice club. That's great. So for me, what I was thinking about in building resilience is one thing you can do is to ask yourself at the end of the day, how did I learn from failure today? What you're implying is I failed today. <laughs> I wasn't perfect today, but what did I learn from it? How can I take the lesson there and apply it to tomorrow and apply it to another obstacle I'm going to face? If you get in a habit of looking at your failures, staring them in the face as uncomfortable as it is, you begin to learn new lessons. Now, I'm not saying, yeah, let's go fail. It's a wonderful thing. No, it's still painful. It's embarrassing. It hurts. However, when you have this approach, what can I learn from failure? And you ask yourself that question. Now, your prefrontal cortex, the, the right behind your forehead, your brain is scanning the environment for opportunities to learn. And when you fail, when an obstacle comes, instead of psychologically retreating, you're going to lean into it. You're going to use fear of failure as a compass to lean in as opposed to lean away because you're in this habit of learning from it. And so at the end of the day, ask yourself, what failure did I learn from today? And I think that could help you build some resilience. I appreciate both of those examples. 
Katie, as I was reading your book, one thing that is an anchor in our program at Google, our resilience program, is that behavior change, resilience, mental performance, it happens by design and not by default. And as I was reading your book and also the intentionality and the purpose behind how we make decisions, when we make decisions has such a big impact on the outcome. And so within the Google culture, if it's not on my calendar, it does not exist and is not real. And so for me, being able to take some of the lessons on how to change from your book and implementing them with this by design concept of designing my calendar so that I can build in rest and recovery, so I can build in these opportunities to seek advice to be able to build in these moments of, of high performance mindsets and uh, reframing and various mental performance behaviors. So I appreciate that principle for us. One more question, and this is my fun question of the day. Imagine you're given time and money to invest in improving your well-being. What are you spending it on and what are you doing with it? I know exactly what it'd be on. I was literally talking to my wife about this the other day. I would invest it in sleep. I would get a new mattress that would help optimize sleep, sleep better. And I would use that whatever time that you would give me to sleep. I love it. Rest and recovery. It's so important. That opportunity to reset your sleep habits. Katie, what about you? I'm going to give you time and money. What are you doing? What I really want to do is um, build a setup that allows me to do one of my favorite things, which is called temptation bundling. And it's something I've studied and it involves connecting something that's really fun and tempting with something that would otherwise feel like a chore to turn that chore into a source of joy. So my favorite kind of temptation bundle is you only let yourself listen to a favorite podcast or audiobook or watch a favorite TV show while you're at the gym. And I think I would build a room in my house with an elliptical, which is my exercise of choice, and a movie screen. So I can get that hit of joy and uh, get that temptation linked to my workouts and, and get more exercise. We have a lot of treadmill desks scattered throughout Google offices, and I'm certain there's some movie streaming happening on those. Um, <laughs> when we're working from office, it's not all email and meetings on those work desks, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation around how to really emphasize and focus on our fresh starts, how to build them into our routines and our habits and how those things impact our performance. So thank you guys for being here. I've very much enjoyed this conversation today. Thank you for having us. This was really fun. Likewise. Thank you so much. Learned so much. Thank you for listening to Resilience at Google. To learn more about how to start new positive habits, you can read Katie's book, How to Change. And you can find links to follow Katie's research and Justin's work, as well as their podcasts by visiting our show notes. Until our next episode, we hope that what you've just heard gives you the ideas and the tools to meet the moments that matter the most to you. This has been a production by the Resilience Team, headed up by our one and only host, Dr. Lauren Witt.
Special thanks to our leaders, Brian Glasser and Fiona Ciccone for sponsoring this project. And of course, thank you to our People Innovation Lab, or PyLab, led by Iwa Shirako, for providing us with the data to inform this conversation. And we'd like to thank our partners over at Long Story Short Media, executive producers Jessica Stewart and Bob Ewell, producer Josh Hall, and editor Andy Strassel for producing this podcast, recorded remotely on Google Meet. If you're interested in other conversations hosted by Google, check out our Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place and can be found wherever you find your favorite shows.